Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all you... And I just tripped over my own tongue. <laughs> See, that's what you you said that you yeah I, yeah I jinxed it I jinxed it, it uh, science <laughs> science fact in all their forms I'm your host Gene Turnbull and today our guest is Neil Halford welcome to the show Neil thank you very much glad to be back now Neil uh, you are a rather historic game designer and you you have uh, you have the uh, the legendary Betrayal of Crondor and Return to Crondor under your belt, and a, uh, a bunch of other games. Um, which other major titles have you done, just for the benefit of the audience? Um, uh, well, uh, I will, just as a point of clarification, is I worked on Return to Crondor for a little while, but uh, that's not really uh, uh, okay. not really something, a uh, feather in my particular cap. Uh, mm. I worked on it for only the first five or six months, uh, or what have you, but... Um, uh, as far as the games that I've worked on, uh, uh, the other game that, that I'm particularly well known for is Dungeon Siege, uh, mm, yes. and uh, which I did, uh, uh, you know, uh, working for Chris Taylor uh, at Gas Powered Games. Mm-hmm. Um, also provided uh, a lot of story and dialogue to uh, Champions of Norath. Uh, did a, a real time strategy game called Lords of EverQuest. Um, and, uh, then before, of course, before, before Betrayal at Crondor even, um, uh, worked on Might and Magic 3 and on Planet's Edge. Uh, and so I, I'm kind of the, the guy you go to when you're looking for someone to help you create a world full of dragons and dwarves and elves and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and, uh, just so that, that the audience also has a frame of reference, I also, was a game designer. Not I didn't work on uh, the remarkable titles that you did, and uh, but I did work on Fairy Tale Adventure Two, and that's I, I I'm very familiar with with those folks because uh, uh, David Joyner, some of the people who worked at New World also mm-hmm. uh, worked with uh, 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 David Joyner and the folks who created Fairy Tale. Uh, what was it? What was the? Can't remember what the, the name of that. Of your group of there was called it was uh, called the Dreamers Guild. The Dreamers Guild, that's right. Yes, that's and right. it was uh, it had it had its moment of Camelot, as as all game companies do. Yes, and I was there for it. Well, I so. I, I really enjoyed uh, about once a month, uh, at least whenever I was at New World, uh, the Dreamers Guild would have a potluck party, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really sort of opening a whole new world to me because uh, we would have New World people over, but all. Uh, 
of some of the frequent guests that would drop in is I remember Jerry Pornell. I remember the Friuses dropping in. Uh, uh, my second enc- ever encounter with Larry Niven was there. Uh, had a much earlier uh, uh, run in with him at a convention in mm-hmm. Oklahoma. It's a different story. Uh, but lots of really amazing people that would come to their monthly potlucks. And I. Uh, really enjoyed those events because it, it was just amazing the the people that I got to know largely thanks to that group of folks over there so I will always be indebted to the Dreamers Guild for helping me in uh, helping in, introduce me to a lot of people who previously had only been people that I'd read about in Locust and, and other things when I was a kid growing up I had uh I honestly didn't have any idea of the the reach and and social power of the Dreamers Guild at the time I was I was the uh Lead level designer for the mm-hmm. for the company. Cool. Uh, I was uh, I was part of the part of the management structure, third down from the top. I was one of three technical directors the company had, mm-hmm. uh, and the the kind of game design I did had more to do with designing um, player experiences mm-hmm. rather than. Uh, well, actually, that's not completely true either. Because we we wrote uh, uh, we wrote the entire story for Fairy Tale Adventure, and uh, I led the team that did that. But we're not here to talk about what I did. <laughs> we're here to talk about what you're doing now with this cool thing that you found. I mean, the game industry has transformed itself so many times. Yes. I mean, back in the day, back when you and I were doing that stuff, and we're talking about uh, uh, mid '90s. Uh, 3D acceleration was brand new. There was a company in Calabasas whose name I can't remember off the top of my head that was doing, uh, doing 3D games and they were chugging it all by software alone. And they used something called voxels. Yes. Volumetric pixels. Uh, right. And that's and I, I'm not sure, but I, I may be uh, mistaken. It's but and somebody will probably come along, come along and correct me. But um, um, I wasn't voxels. Wasn't that Lewis Castle and the folks who became Westwood? I it might be. It might um, be. It might be. I I, uh, I, I remember that uh, that that company went. Uh, they they were well known for their flight simulators, and it, by the standard of the day, their flight simulators were drop dead gorgeous. Just, mm-hmm. just amazing technology, and then uh, the first, um, the first three D accelerators came out in nineteen ninety five, and their ch- company just tanked, mm-hmm. just wham, I mean mm-hmm. gone that fast. Like within a year, they were bankrupt and out of business. Uh, and it's because the technology just lapped them, and and they had uh, they didn't have a plan B, and. Um, it, in the old days, we used to roll our own game engines. We used to build everything up from scratch. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's that's the one thing that whenever I talk to people, they'll say, "Well, you know, they'll talk about here's this engine and that engine or whatever." And I said, "I have I've worked on a lot of engines you've never even heard of uh, because uh, back in the day before." companies started licensing out their game engines to other people, so Unreal and and Crytek and all of those good folks back before they came along. Uh, Whenever you built a title, for the most part, as you said, you were creating the engine yourself. And not only were you you creating the engine, then you're also designing, every time you're designing a game, you're also designing a tool set. Mm -hmm. And you had to do it from scratch every single time. Yes. There was no cross-platform 
uh, compatibility. No, no. You, and and when you when you saw a game that was released on PC and Macintosh, for example, it meant that somebody had rebuilt the entire game engine from scratch to work on this other platform. Yeah, because it was just the 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 the, the underlying archite- uh, hardware architecture was so different. There was that there was the only thing that you could do. You couldn't uh, you couldn't build code that you could simply port over. Well, you couldn't even you couldn't even port the assembly language. Yeah, because uh, on Motorola hardware, uh, the most important you know the 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 large byte that that defined the scope of the smaller one came before. Right. You know, it was left Indian rather than right Indian, or mm-hmm. big Indian rather than little Indian, mm-hmm. as they described it. And you couldn't even port the assembly language. No, it, it was, was just incom- and totally so incompatible. it was. Uh, I remember it would, was would become a very big deal because you would release uh, one of the the or uh, in the early days. Of course, when we talking, you know, now we talk about uh, whether you're going to be on PS3 or Xbox or whatever. Of course, back in the day, we were talking about. Uh, whether you're going to be on an IBM, were you going to be on a Mac, were you going to be on Amiga, Atari, mm-hmm. um, and so you had Coleco. <laughs> yeah, uh, yep, Coleco uh, and television. And so there were, you know, half dozen uh, different computer platforms, but the only difference was mm-hmm. is, is now whenever you, as you said, we can build something on a PS4 and it can be on a, an Xbox uh, in a relatively short period of time. And the reason for this is that we now have something called authoring systems. Yes. Content is king now. Mm-hmm. And by using an authoring system, you can build your game and then just export it to the various uh, the various platforms. And this is how uh, this is how it's possible for a game to come out simultaneously. I mean, you see the the uh, the commercials for the new games you know, simultaneously on PC and Mac and uh, PS4 and Xbox One and the Everything Wii U, the and they release it all at once. Yes, and. It's possible because we have a, these universal adapter flanges now yes. that handle all the content and handle all of the runtime nuances so that we don't have to worry about it. And we provide, uh, we provide some high-level scripting, usually written in uh, C-sharp or Python or uh, in Lua. the case. Yeah, or Lua. Yeah. Or in the case of the Unreal Engine, directly in C++, which is weird. Yes. Uh and uh, and you just hit the button and you hit export and you can go from anything from a PS4 to an Android phone. Yes, uh, though though obviously there, uh, whenever you are going uh, from, there are some differences obviously whenever you're developing for something for that's for the PC versus console because you have mm-hmm. different you know the interfaces have to be different. So uh, so it there there there's still some degree of a little bit of a ghetto of okay well this particular title we knew it need to adapt it for mm-hmm. console kinds of games versus mouse and keyboard uh, controls and that sort of thing. But uh, like for, for example, the most part whenever they're designing these mm-hmm. things these days they're designing for both of those things simultaneously and so you have a different UI team uh, working for, mm-hmm. for both, but, um, like for example, DC universe online, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, uh, there's a PS3 version and there's a PC version and they have, they run them on separate servers mm-hmm. because they determined that the, no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't make the, uh, the PC versions user interface work as well as the PlayStation one. And it gave the PlayStation players, uh, a really strong advantage. So yeah. they, well, and they, and they it, can't, it, it, they can't let the two universes touch. 
you know, and and by converse, if you're running something like a real time strategy game, uh, it becomes very difficult to compete against a PC title, mm-hmm. uh, P- PC control, simply because just the, the the options that you have with a keyboard and mouse. And so uh, there still is a degree to which most games will have either a con- have either a console or a, a PC bias in terms mm-hmm. of just being able to design uh, for having the, the greatest power and the greatest usability for the user depending on, on what, uh, what box they're using. But, um, but anyway, it is, it is very exciting that, that uh, we now live in an era where it is much simpler for not only for the, the, the programmers to, to be able to quickly kind of adapt and, and, uh, and deploy on different platforms, but also for designers to be able to say, mm-hmm. I don't have to redesign this game a half a dozen times. And uh, so the first big thing that happened, um, I think this happened starting around 1985, uh, about 10 years after we were rolling our engines by hand and writing our own scripting languages from scratch. Mm-hmm. That was mad <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, I did two of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was, uh, it was, you made it, made you look like a f- freaking magician. <laughs> you know, when you yes. pulled off something like that, because nobody yeah. had the head for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 10 years later, it was all, it was all these authoring systems and you'd upload your stuff and push, you know, export it. And you might have to tweak things for one platform or the next, but most of the work was done all in one piece. And, uh, the authoring systems were very expensive and they would cost something like $5,000 a chair or something like that. Yes. And there weren't very many of them that worked well. And uh, fast forward to today, and I think the last domino has fallen, and every single one of them is now available as a free download. Either free or, or subscription-based for you know, a fairly low price. Um, who's, who's, uh, we've got the Unreal Engine, which is now free. Mm-hmm. We've got... Uh, um, Help me out here. We've got. <laughs> oh, we've got. We've got. You know, you've got a lumberyard. Uh, Crytek is. I don't know if they're. Yeah, Cry, CryEngine. CryEngine is free. Um, it, it just went free. And and lumberyard um, is based on CryEngine. Uh, yeah. So yeah, lumberyard is is it's based on CryEngine three. Um, uh, I think they're up to what four or five now. Mm-hmm. But but uh, lumberyard is so basically it is is sort of a point of departure starting with about CryEngine three, and mm-hmm. they're kind of going off. Uh, they're they're going to be developing direction. Some, new tech and, and then and there's new approaches. And then the most popular uh, authoring system by far that blows away any of the others in terms of popularity is Unity 3D. Yes. And that one uses C-sharp as a scripting language. And yes. Microsoft's C-sharp for, I mean, we are spewing gobbledygook like crazy here. Yes, yes. For the, for the audience. <laughs> uh, there this are. This is a couple of geeks talking to each other, you know, uh, talking, cling on to each other. Here. Yeah, well, pretty much. Uh Back in the day, uh, right, right around 1975, there was this new language called Java. And uh, it basically was a very fast interpreter that didn't have to load the instructions every time. Uh-huh. And it made it faster than any, uh, any other scripting language. Uh-huh. And then uh, I think it was the Mozilla Foundation created something that ran in web browsers called JavaScript, which has absolutely nothing to do with Java. But it was confusing as all hell. And, <laughs> and then Microsoft decided, well, you know, we want a piece of Sun Microsystems action. You know, we want to eat their lunch and we're going to create this new 
this new .NET thing, which nobody could adequately define, not even Microsoft. Uh-huh. And we're going to make this new language, C Sharp, the centerpiece of .NET. And uh, .NET technology has mostly sort of fallen away. Nobody actually, you don't see uh, job listings for it anymore. You know, it's all C Sharp and ASP and this kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but they refer to it by C Sharp. Now, uh-huh. C Sharp, from a structural standpoint, is fundamentally a clone of Java, as far as I can tell. Uh, it has the same features. It works approximately the same way. There, are, I'm sure I'm going to get, um, you know, we're going to get some commentary from well, our so listeners who say, like, well, no, you know, you're out of your mind. <laughs> compiler runs slightly to him. Yeah, you know, um, as, uh, the purists will will yes. will kick about that statement, but there's by the time you've uh, by the time you've worked with as many languages as I have, they all sort of start to blur together, and it's oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well. And of course, I, I I got started back in the dark ages whenever I was doing basic and and uh, peeking and poking and mm-hmm. all of that fun stuff. Uh, so I never got down to the machine language kind of stuff because that was whenever I started to melt because I'm. I am uh, more of a word person than I am mm-hmm. a number person. And so uh, that was getting abstract enough that it was even difficult for me to, to follow, despite the fact that I was interested in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the little sound effects we're hearing, uh, uh, we just got word that uh, uh, the guy who plays Mr. Creature in Dr. Geek's Laboratory of Applied Geekdom is has just had emergency surgery. And he's uh, uh, apparently he's fine. Um, but, uh, Dr. Geek, Dr. Scott Vigay, uh, has just IM'd me to let me know that, uh, that he's going to be okay. So Great. That's very, very happy, happy to hear that, Chris. Uh, we hope you feel better soon. Uh, the difficulty with, uh, you know, working in, in these various languages is that, uh, you know, it's, it's like, Turn, you have to write little bits of code to describe everything that the game uh, game elements do. Yes. And so for the, for the non-programmers out there, what you're really doing when you're designing one of these games or you're designing characters and interactions for the games is you figure out what you want everything to do and you have this story that you're trying to implement. Mm-hmm. But after that, you have to build the parts. Yes. And every character you can, it's like, it's a little organism. And you have to give that organism enough brains so that it can function in its environment and respond to stimuli. Right. If this happens, then do that. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if three or more, uh, uh, if three or more of us are crowded together, we feel brave enough to go attack the player. But if two players are nearby, run away. That <laughs> right. kind of thing. Right. You know, you you are basically building a form of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. um, and it, granted, it is very 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 low level kind of uh, kind of intelligence because mm-hmm. uh, one of the one of the fine lines that I like to talk to people about is say that there is a difference between a game and a simulation, and some people don't really understand the distinction between the two. Of if you were to make a game completely realistic, you would have a very short games because people would die very quickly, very brutally, and. <laughs> Uh, oh, yes. And oh, the yes. enemies would be way smarter and, and wipe uh-huh. you out. Uh, and so if you were to truly create a an AI that replicated the way the real world works, uh, you would uh, uh, you would be wiped out instantaneously. 
Um, there is, uh, I used to, the way I used to describe it to the, uh, uh, the level designers that used to work for me, uh, work under me, uh, there's two kinds of truth in, in, uh, that you're trying to portray in games. There is physical truth and there is visceral truth. If it feels right in the context of the game, yes. then it's right. If yes. you go for physical simulation, uh, you are going to have to limit it to things like the interaction between physical objects. Right. And even some of that you have to tweak. You know, you have to make things bouncier than they really would be or they would break. They should break faster or more easily and so that your the environment breaks and your player doesn't. Mm -hmm. So that they can actually get to go do something or see something without mm -hmm. dying in frame 47. <laughs> right, right. You know, so you, um, and I, I think that that um, it's it's been kind of fascinating because the trend definitely has been, particularly over the past 10 years, is really heavily basing games on physics. Mm -hmm. uh, to a degree which almost has has made games not nearly as much fun to play, at least in my opinion. When, uh, when the entire uh, world is breakable, you know, you just run around smashing things. And, and just smashing stuff. And, you know, we, you, know, you go back to uh, Grand Theft Auto, whenever Grand Theft Auto came mm -hmm. out. And one of the first things that I noticed people were doing is, is they didn't really care about what was going on with the story. They didn't, you know, really care if they had a mission or whatever. Their favorite thing to do is go out and, and call uh, and play what I called soccer, where they would... Uh, they would get in a, in a bus, and then they, they'd go. They'd steal a bus, and they drive around. They try to find a car, and they they would would they would, <laughs> they, they would smack going. these these cars around and treat them like soccer balls. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, and and uh, I used in DC Universe. You know, I mean, after a while, you get tired of grinding, mm -hmm. and uh, so I used to go uh, go around with my super powered character and find cars, mm -hmm. and pick up cars and throw them and see what I could make happen. You know, right. or just find a bunch of cars stopped at a light and uh punch the back bumper of the the uh the last one in line mm -hmm. that driver then panics hits the gas and then starts hitting the other cars who mm -hmm. also panic Mm -hmm. and oh. uh, hilarity ensues. Yeah, well, and, and that's sort of the thing I, I see about it is it's like the same thing that happens. Uh, I, I think that, that a lot of games have evolved into something that I classify more as a toy than I, con mm -hmm. I consider it a game. Um, and so I, I go back to uh, to games like uh, something one of my former bosses did, Jeff Tunnell mm -hmm. and his friends did at Dynamics, was a, a great game called The Incredible Machine. Oh, yes, I remember that. And the physical simulation. Uh, it was a really cool game, which was just about building weird gadgets. It didn't really have, there wasn't a point to it. Uh, you just wanted to, to build these weird Rube Goldberg-esque kind mm -hmm. of, of machines where you'd get gears and you'd get wheels and you'd get all this weird stuff and you'd arrange it and you'd try to like shoot the ball through through the thing. But there was no winning, there was no losing. It was just something you messed with. Yeah. And that's that sort of falls into the category of what we call the sandbox games now. And so I'm just going to go out and I'm going to do whatever uh, the game isn't going to tell me what I, I have to do or don't have to do. I don't have to have goals or achievements. Uh, maybe I have achievements of, oh, you destroyed 50 buses today. So you're working on um, a ground-up rebuild of Betrayal of Crondor. Yes. Well, I, uh, let me just first of all classify that it is not going to be a commercial release um because what i'm what i'm doing right now is sort of a an experiment because um 
earlier this year in February, uh, Amazon announced that they were going to be releasing this new engine called mm-hmm. Lumberyard, mm-hmm. Uh, which again is is based on Crytek. And yep. I was very interested in see, finding out what kind of of capabilities this might uh, this engine might have. And I thought, well, okay, well, I could create a new new game uh, for this, but rather than spending the time and the effort to create an entirely new concept from scratch, I just wanted to kind of get in and start getting my my uh, uh, hands dirty. And since I already had a design mm-hmm. for Betrayal at Crondor, since I uh, John Cutter and I were the ones who did all uh, all of the the design work on the original title back in 1993, mm-hmm. uh, I decided that I would just pick up up that design and start trying to see what would it be like to try to implement the basic gameplay from that game in uh, in Lumberyard as kind of a test. First of all, uh, to see that how easy or how hard would it be to implement that kind of a game now that's that's without trying to update the game and fundamentally change the mechanics for for a fully 3d engine now we the original game that we built it in was a 3d engine but it was much more simplistic than what we have now you didn't have uh real physics going Mm -hmm. on movement and combat were all turn-based um but it it was it's a very different kind of engine but but i wanted to see is is like how um, how quickly could I implement that that gameplay into in your, into Lumberyard? And of course, one of the advantages too is uh, Lumberyard, like Crytek, is just it renders beautifully. You just have this very amazing rendering engine, and and you can come up with some stuff that looks really realistic. Um, so I was really excited about the visual capabilities of it. But one of the things that really got me excited about the engine to begin with is that. Uh, we were talking earlier about scripting languages and, mm-hmm. and everything. So uh, I'm I'm someone where I can script. I've done a great deal of uh, deal of uh, deal of that over the years for various games I've worked on. It does not make me happy uh, because <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. um, it, and it can, whenever, it can get wooly. Well, it can get wooly, and also too is just that you whenever you're planning a game particularly a game like betrayal at crondor which is story intensive it has lots of dialogue lots of branching capabilities mm-hmm. uh the first one of the first things that you have to do is you have to draw flowcharts to figure out how everything's going to work and so first you sit down and you work this out as a flowchart then you need to stop and say now i need to interpretate uh, interpret this flowchart into a scripting language mm-hmm. which is another step away from the engine to actually get done what I'm trying to achieve. And whenever you're dealing with branching dialogues and things with lots of capabilities, trying to create that in script, in script can mm-hmm. drive you to near suicidal extremes. Yeah, because it, it's when you're dealing with a, a potentially event-driven situation, uh, any little thing that the player could do by accident could invalidate an entire branch of activity. Exactly. Um, you know, they and, could and, accidentally kill the NPC that's the keystone to finishing the game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, things like that. <laughs> you know, I forgot to close my curly brace, and that happened in, you know, 50 lines uh, uh, lines before. Oh. So, um, so it just one of those situations where it's just extremely aggravating to try to, to do that in old system. But one of the things that attracted me to Lumberyard is that it uses as a system that's built as part of the core part of the system, and this, this is something it inherited from Crytek, uh, is it uses a uh, what they call the flow node system, and it is a visual scripting system. 
Well, I was uh, uh, looking at um, the Unreal Engine, and they had something called, uh, what was it, Blue Code? or I can't remember the name of it, but they had something very similar. But um, the I really love that because, you know, whenever we were developing games before and we're doing flowcharts, I, I, I can draw out the flowchart, but that flowchart isn't functional. Right, <laughs> You know, I yeah. can't do anything with that flowchart because basically you say, okay, this is just a diagram of how to think about approaching the code, and then you have to stop and, and rebuild everything from scratch in code. Uh, and it's just extremely laborious, very time-consuming, and you, you basically effect, uh, waste an entire cycle of reinterpreting yourself. Mm-hmm. Blue, blueprints. That's it's, what it was called. Unreal, okay, Blueprints. Uh, yeah, the Unreal Engine. Blueprints. And so, uh, though Unreal is not native, it is a plugin that you have to buy. Um, but, with, uh, but with Lumberyard, uh, it, is, it is integral to the engine. Um, so uh, one of the things that, that, uh, that, again, really attracted to me is the fact that I'm not going to have to basically waste a whole cycle of doing all this other stuff and then go back and figure out how this works in numbers. Mm-hmm. I, 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 think it's, I think they've ruled it in now. I think it's, it's all oh. in one. Okay. Um, but um, so, so for me, that, the idea that I didn't have to kind of uh, redo all that work was, was very mm-hmm. attractive. And so the beautiful thing about it is, is that it is, uh, you can uh, make changes in, uh, in the, 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 uh, the flow nodes the same way you do with something like Lua, where you don't have to, to recompile the entire game. You can see instant changes in the game as you uh, make changes in the flow node. So it's it's really kind of uh, it, it's it's kind of exciting though because it's a flow chart that you create visually. Um, you draw the little boxes, and each box is a step in in what you want to happen, and they represent a piece of code. And mm-hmm. the, all you have to worry about are the inputs and the outputs. Uh, so this variable uh, uh, this variable uh, value comes in here, and and this is what it does with that output. And you're not having to worry about the code that's underneath it. All you're worried about is the function. Um, and so you you can draw, you can drag a connector from one node of this flowchart to another flowchart, uh, flow and mm-hmm. it's basically coding the game for you. And you never actually touch code. That's astonishing. So how and, do you it, how do you uh, how do you set up a sensor, for example? How do you uh, uh, do a filter on what kind of object that sensor is going to detect? Um, so say for instance that, um, you want to do, you know, the, one of the most basic, you know, things you're going to do in a game engine is say, I want to lay a trigger down and mm-hmm. say that whenever someone was in, is within this trigger, then fire off this activity. So, uh, you have a, uh, a box that's part of your editing kit. So, so imagine that I'm in my 3d environment and I can select a trigger that I just drop in the world. And that trigger already knows, already has logic attached to it that says if a player is, you know, ha- enters this, then on the enter of uh, whenever a player enters this thing, fire this piece of code or fire this particular f- flow node. And so then you just attach an association to a flow node that you've created. So basically create it to, it would be the same as, as attaching a script to it, is say, attach a, this flow, uh, this flow node or this flow chart to this, this thing. So when the player enters this, fire this event. Um, and so, um, you can then say, okay, uh, depending, you can then say, okay, find out 
what the ID of is it a player, is it a monster, is it mm-hmm. whatever you want it to be, is it an, an object? So it's, it's it's something that you can just click on and drag to it or or hook up to it, and and, yep. and you're just off to the races. Yep, pretty much. Pretty that's much. wow. That sounds very very simple. I took a, a look at Lumberyard uh, when it was first released. Uh, has it gone through a lot of changes? Um, we're up to, uh, they're iterating about a new update of every month or so. That's incredible. Um, and so, um, of course the thing about it is, is that, that, um, the hard part is, is they're not terribly well documented yet, mm-hmm. which for someone, I wouldn't recommend someone who is a, a fresh out of the, the gate game developer, uh, go and try to build something too ser- terribly serious with Lumberyard. Not that it doesn't have the power, but you're going to be flailing around because there's just not much information available. Because if you look at something like Unity or if you look at Crytek mm-hmm. or some of these other things, uh, there's a lot of documentation. Now, you can go dig up stuff about the Crytek engine that will help you because uh, a lot of that functionality is still in there, but some stuff has either been changed and some stuff has been deprecated. So not all of that functionality is going to be contiguous. Uh, also uh, with Amazon, they're, they're building all these, these helpers for it to make certain mm-hmm. things easier. Uh, they've built a really awesome thing for importing FBX, which is a, a export format for 3d modeling programs. So uh, whether your, your choice of is Maya or, 3D Max or Blender or whatever the case may be, uh, you can export uh, an FBX file, mm-hmm. and this will will make makes it fairly easy to kind of drag and drop and and drop in your assets. Uh, yeah, that that file Blender. format is used by um, Motion Builder originally, wasn't it? Um, um, I it stands remember. for something. I <laughs> it stands for something. I can't remember. I, or uh, it's not Lightwave. It's um, but it's something. I can't remember off the top of my head. But but anyway, it, it, it's a uh, it's it was a, a file format that available f- for Macs and for mm-hmm. uh, for Maya. Something that was fr- frustrating whenever uh, Lumberyard first came out is, of course, there's a gigantic community of people out there who use Blender. Uh, for right. people who don't know, uh, Blender is a 3D modeling package. It's completely free. You can um, get it from Blender.org. Yeah, and you can get it from from Blender.org. It's and it a, has it has amazing capability. You can do feature animation with it. Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's that good. It is also one of has one of the weirdest, hardest to understand user interfaces of any piece of software yeah. I have ever seen in my life. It does, and it was particularly just, difficult if you got used to using 3D Max and Maya, and then you back up and you're used to using Blender. Um, but that said, is it doesn't cost me you know five thousand dollars to buy it. Yes, that's one of the big advantages. <laughs> well, and it also has its own game engine built into it. it and does. and it runs yeah. on Python and it uses Python as an embedded scripting language for both Blender itself and the game engine. And and uh and Maya uses Python and uh I think um uh, a lot of the compositing packages, you know, that motion picture you know, use for motion picture work. They they use Python, and there's there's just been this great convergence mm-hmm. of of uh, information standards between uh, the various game engines and uh, and computer animation uh, software, so that they all use the same stuff, and it's just it's opened uh, the floodgates. Well, I, I think part of that, of course, part of it too is that uh, whenever uh, 3D, uh, 3D Studio Max bought Maya. Um, 
uh, that uh, sort of I already kind of started saying, okay, well, we need to start making these two things play together. And but part of it is too is just it kind of boils down to what tool can you use most effectively? Uh, because it's is that I know people that are amazing artists with Maya or amazing artists with 3D Studio Max, but they can't quite get the hang of the other. Both mm-hmm. are equally powerful. Uh, but it all boils down to what's the tool that you can work most effectively with. And at the end of the day, you say, hey, I can do amazing stuff with Blender. That's fantastic. Um, now, the thing about it is if you're going to go, uh, if you are looking at doing this for a career, uh, to be honest, they're not going to be looking at your, your Blender samples. They're going to be look, you know, studios, movie studios and game studios are going to be looking at you and say, let me see your Maya, let me see your 3D Studio Max. Or uh, if you are, are a particular breed of animal, I know all the Trek people developed in Lightwave. Mm-hmm. Um, so Doug Drexler and those good folks. Um, so, uh, so anyway, but, but at the end of the day, the one thing is, though, is that um, you use the tool that's going to be most important for doing what you want to do. And I think that, that honestly, right now, right now, we're starting to see with games, I think what started to happen with independent films starting about 10 years ago is that the tools have, have been kind of unlocked. They've, become, they've come to, down to a price that are affordable and usable by most people. Uh, if you want to learn about any given tool out there, the most amazing thing in the world out there is YouTube. Um, <laughs> oh, Yeah. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. it's it's the the one way in which YouTube has actually lived up to the promise of what it should have been is the fact that that if there are tutorials on every freaking piece of of software that you might care to to get interested in, and so uh, if you're interested in learning about these pieces of software, uh, look no further than YouTube because you can find amazing good stuff. Now, obviously, there's some degree of sorting because sometimes mm-hmm. you get a tutorial that's done by a ten year old kid, and you know he right, doesn't know how to teach right. anybody, and he doesn't he barely even knows how to use the thing. Himself. But there are also masters, yes, who who uh, who spend no expense in in conveying the knowledge that they have. Yes. So, so what are you doing? Uh, what have you done so far with uh, uh, the working with Lumberyard and and tinkering around with elements of Crondor? So, so um, uh, my ultimate goal is is to rebuild the first zone or the first chapter of the game. I would I would consider doing more, but the original title um, is uh, is a licensed pro- a property, and and the gaming rights are actually. Uh, for anything related to Crondor or Mikemia, the world, uh, the 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 literary world that was, that was based on from from Raymond E. Feist, those rights are all currently held by Blizzard, and they're in a. Oh, I didn't a, realize. Hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's in the hands of Blizzard. Blizzard these days, and whenever I've ta- I talked to Ray about it uh, a year or two ago at Comic Con, whenever we we bumped into each other and we we're, we're chatting about stuff, um, and he said, unfortunately, right now the rights are tied up there. Blizzard doesn't even seem to know. Under, uh, know where they stand on on the license. So right now it's just locked up. And partially, I think it is trying to prevent another major fantasy universe coming in and messing with them. Um, so I decided what I would do is I would build the first chapter and the first uh, level or the for the first area of the game because that way I'm not really ste- majorly stepping on anybody's toes. I'm not doing it commercially. I'm actually doing it as a learning exercise, and I'm sharing to tut- not not so much tutorials, but I'm kind of showing people what I've been able to do with it so far. So. Um, I have a YouTube channel, and so far what I've done is I've, I've recreated two 
of the systems. They're very simple systems so far, but I've recreated two of the systems uh, from the original game. The first thing I did, just because uh, I am a, a writer, story guy, uh, the first thing I, I created, uh, recreated was the dialogue and keyword system uh, that we used in the original game. And so it's possible to go through and run through a dialogue uh, like what we had in the original game. It's, I've got it data-driven, so I can go in and change the content of the dialogue uh, just using XML files. Uh, it's, and so right now I can dump any, any dialogue, any characters into it and uh, give it, give it the, the keyword names, and it will all uh, automatically assign itself. And again, that's thanks to all, all that information is being processed through the uh, flow node system. And if you go to the, uh, uh, you go to the Lumberyard website, which is uh, httpaws.amazon.com slash Lumberyard, you can see screenshots of Lumberyard and some of the things that people have done with it. And it's amazing. I mean, some of these things look like freaking photographs, you know, mm-hmm. or, or stills from a motion picture. Yeah. It's that good. Yeah, it's, it's got an amazing rendering engine. It just really does. And I, I think that's... So um, um, the, the second thing that I've got uh, for it is, is I recreated the puzzle chess. And for people who played uh, Betrayal at Crondor, that's one of the systems that people uh, still t- kind of talk about or have great fondness for. So I've recreated that system as well. Um, but uh, the one of the other powers of 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 this particular engine that attracted me beyond just the flow node system is the fact that it is Amazon, um, and what Amazon is going to ultimately be able to do for you is that uh, you've got you know, they they're used they they're going to have their own game engine, but Amazon is the number one distribution channel on the planet. Now, if you build a game. On Amazon's uh, in, in Amazon's uh, engine, uh, then you can also distribute that game through Amazon. Well, and, and it, there's more to it than that as well. I mean, if yes. you have a multiplayer, uh, massively multiplayer online design that you want to do, one of the biggest stumbling blocks in getting a game like that going is where are you going to get the money for the freaking server farm that it takes to do it? Right. Well, and with uh, with Amazon and Lumberyard, that's no longer a problem. You can just hire the services you need from AWS, which is Amazon's uh, web services, uh, and buy as much as you need, and, and you can scale it up from zero, and you don't have the huge multi-million dollar investment that you, that, uh, that you Blizzard used to have to pay, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and they would, they would have to have a server farm every time they did a game. And it's integrated into the engine. And so uh, integration for all of their cloud AWS services as well as Twitch integration is all built into the engine. Um, now, what, so, is, what is Twitch? Now, Twitch in, in is this, in this for context. folks um, – uh, one of the, the big emerging things obviously going on in games anymore is that games are no longer just games where I'm sitting around and playing with, uh, with uh, my friends or what have you. It's increasingly becoming a spectator sport. Twitch allows you to broadcast your games. Ah, I see. Okay. Um, and oh, like so, Twitch, Twitch TV. Yeah, you go Twitch TV, and so so you can go in and watch what's going on with games. You can comment and have a, a degree of kind of uh, so you can uh, uh, see what's going on with with other gamers. And so it's um, Twitch has become sort of the broadcasting network for gamers. And so uh, this has has tools and features built into it that allow you uh, for to do 
to share stuff that you're doing, uh, and that's all kind of built in. You don't have to build special code. You don't have to do uh, create any special relationships in order to to uh, to have all this stuff seamlessly integrated with your content. So that's pretty exciting. That's that's pretty wild, and it's all the barriers have come down. I mean, it, all of this stuff is free or nearly free, mm-hmm. and uh, it it's a democratizing. Uh, force it it levels the playing field anybody with access to a machine can learn how to do this and and do it and immediately be part of the world community yeah and uh when you and i first got into game design it was not that way at all well of course the irony of the situation is in some ways we've come full circle because in the old days uh whenever you're you know uh Ken and Roberta Williams or your John Van Canningham, you're sitting in your, your you've got this, you know, great game that you've built for your uh, Amiga and you've uh, in your garage and mm-hmm. you've built this, this fantastic game. In the early days, you were creating your game and you were putting in a Ziploc bag and advertising the back of PC World. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and so, uh, so that's how you would get your name out there and get the game distributed and everything. And then we went, then games blew up and they became corporations and, and they said, and people realized, Hey, there could be actually be money in this. And so corporations came along and they built uh, distribution channels and, and they did all this amazing stuff. Um, and so uh, you had a relatively, uh, if you were a game developer, if, if you were actually you know, big enough to be in the business of making games, your games were going to get seen mm-hmm. because there was limited number of titles available, only so much sel- shelf space. Uh, corporations had agreements with the the uh, the sales outlets. They said, okay, you're going to sell X number of units of – we'll give you X number of units of this blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. If you made a game, you knew people would see it. And then and it all then, went – it all went to – and then it all went to hell. Then it all went to hell. And because, so, because of the licensing – um, they figured the only the uh, the big companies uh, couldn't afford not to have a hit, so right. they would license you know this movie or that movie, and they quickly discovered that nobody wanted to play the movie they'd just seen on a video game. Right, right. And uh, uh, so even today, the store you go to you go to Walmart or Target or something, you go to the game section, and it's you know game show the game or the t- yeah. this tv show that game this yeah. cartoon that game mm-hmm. no <laughs> and and these things sit there and yeah, they end up in the bargain bin no. and nobody cares well and also to the, the other the other part of that is is it is call of duty part 3000 um yeah. you know now we have you really you have know, to watch where you step in a game called call of duty <laughs> i'm sorry yeah. I went to the but, bad place. But, you know, they um but the 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 major labels became sort of allergic to um doing anything different because yeah. the fear is is that if we change too much, then the player base that we know that has come in and, and eaten up the past, you know, mm-hmm. five iterations of the game, they might not come back. And so we'll just change some of the guns, we'll change some of the levels, and maybe we'll tweak a few things, but it'll pretty much be the same game that you've been playing for the past 10 or 15 years. Which is why Blizzard Entertainment is currently kicking ass with Overwatch. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they took a chance. They did something they had never done before, and uh, they are uh, they're eating Team Fortress 2's lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, when Overwatch came out... Uh, um, occasionally I play Team Fortress 2 with my son, not very often, but he mm. was a, he was a frequent player. And he said that uh, 
uh, when Overwatch came out, suddenly Team Fortress 2 was a ghost town. <laughs> and it was like you couldn't get on the servers before. And now it's like you log on and there's a player. <laughs> well, the, the you know, one or or it's empty. Well, the advantage of of Blizzard is they are not a poor company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so if they decide they want to come in, they've had an advantage of being sort of innovators in as much as they they have had thanks to games like Diablo and all of those mm -hmm. fantastic early titles over there. They they built these huge kind of piles of cash as insulation. And then they developed a philosophy which is still fairly rare, honestly, among most publishers, which is we don't ship a title until it's ready. Very, very um, unusual. I mean, and, because every all the other titles, all of the other, you know, um, Knight Rider, the game, or <laughs> I don't know what, you know, like they, they buy up some cheap license and then they try to build a game out of it. It sucks. And then it goes in the bargain bin. And and it's uh, uh but they can afford not to do that because they have this deep war chest that they got from from Warcraft and all of the and uh, Starcraft and all of the spawn from that. Yeah, and and so the advantage they have is that the, you know one of the things you'll find with Blizzard they never ship on time, at least in terms of whenever they say they're That's going to true. ship. They say here's That's a date, true. here's a date we're going to ship on, and I'll lay you dollars to donuts. It will not ship on that day. <laughs> That's, that's, um, I had not noticed that until you pointed it out, but that's absolutely that's absolutely true. They never ship on time, uh, but it, but the thing about it is, is that it's in some ways is I personally think that's purely a PR stunt. Is they tell people says we're going to ship this game on this date, and lots of people because they know the reputation of Blizzard, they're all going to be foaming at the mouth, excited, and and they're going to start spreading the word. Oh, great, this is going to be out, and so you build this gigantic you know, wave of anticipation. And so then they're on forums every day. I can't wait till Overwatch comes up. Blah, 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 blah. And this goes on for months and months in advance. And you build this huge sort of anticipation for this game. What do you think, uh, what do you think Ubisoft is trying to pull with, uh, the Star Wars virtual reality game? Um, well, because I, I, obviously, obviously this, this game is not meant for mortal man. Well, VR, um, is, the thing about it, everybody's gotten really excited about VR, and I am a little bit of a skeptic when it comes to VR because it's the same thing that happens whenever every ten or fifteen years everybody mm -hmm. says, "Oh my God, 3D!" You know? Yeah. Well, um, it, the last, the last big, uh, the last really big thing to happen to computer gaming was in 1995. Mm -hmm. You know, with the yeah. with the uh, uh, introduction of hardware accelerated 3D graphics. Well, and, 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 and then, I, the, and then after that, uh, authoring systems, I guess, was the next big thing after that. And now we well, do. Multi, you got to say multiplayer in the middle of it. Oh, right, multiplayer, yeah. right, right around the same. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, massively multiplayer stuff became easier yeah. to do. Uh, yeah, whenever, whenever you get to to uh, you uh, Ultima Online and then EverQuest, when you EverCrack, you know EverCrack, yeah, you know, the the one that really you know uh, sort of cracked the formula for figuring out how to have these large sustainable worlds. Uh, you know that was another major change. But um, but VR is to gaming what I think 3D is to film and television. Is that mm -hmm. about every ten years somebody just really gets a real hard on for this is going to be the great thing that that is going to completely transform the industry. And I remain the huge skeptic because the same problem that I have with VR is the same problem I have with 3D television set. Is ultimately I've got to buy a pair of very expensive uh, headgear 
I did um, I did the math on this Star Trek VR thing, and it's eight hundred dollars for that headset with the the wrist controllers. Um, it's another four hundred for the PlayStation Four. It's a, probably another eighty five for the for the game itself. Plus, you have to have a broadband subscription. Mm-hmm. You're into it for thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred dollars for one person to play this game. There is no way that this game is going to have a huge following. It's just it's a well, show it's a showcase thing. Well, the thing about it is, I think is is they are probably going to you know the people who are developing for the stuff right now are looking at it in the same way that people who are early developers for any technology is going to be. Whether you're talking about a gaming box or whatever, is that the early titles are not really there to be awesome blockbuster titles. They're there to basically say, give me a hint of what's possible with this. And then you just hope to God you get enough early adopters and people who mm-hmm. are rabid enough about it that they'll stick with it and keep going with it. I looked at, uh, I looked but, at the artwork for it, you know, and the, the animation in the, the demo video. There's an article on Krypton Radio that where we talk about this. And uh, it, looked like, um, uh, it looked like Bridge Commander from 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was not impressive. And, well, and, and the, it's a hard part because you're dealing with latent, latency. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And so, uh, you no, know, but the but the uh, the characters and and the the quality of the models were very low, and I was mm-hmm. I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, I, I think that that you know that's and that's always going to be sort of the driver is is we have amazing computers they can do a whole lot uh, yet, but the idea of completely immersive you know, uh, kind of environments that are going to pass for quote-unquote reality. Of course, it, it, it kind of depends on what you're looking for, too. If you were, one of the things that Blizzard was smart about, I'm, I'm doing a lot of Blizzard praise today, so, day here. Um, uh, one of the things that Blizzard did that was really smart whenever they developed World of Warcraft um, was is that at the time that they released World of Warcraft, was a time when EverQuest was pushing for more and more realism. You know, we would have right. specular reflections on everything, and you've got uh, you've got ambient occlusion, and you've got all this crazy stuff that's going on that we were, we're trying to do in, in EverQuest. And Blizzard says, "Let's do the smart thing." He says, "You know that in order to to render a realistic texture in real time is it requires a lot of." A, a lot of uh, uh, bandwidth and, and, and memory and all this power. stuff. Yeah. And computing power. He says, but if you look at Warcraft, uh, World of Warcraft, you know, the, at least the early uh, early releases, it's flat shading on everything. It's cell shading. It's practically a cartoon. Yeah, practically. Yeah, they used uh, something called vertex lighting. Yeah. And so the advantage with that is the fact that you're not shoving big, complicated uh, mm-hmm. textures through the pipeline. You're sending very simple fill ex- instructions. Um, uh, oh, uh, through the through the pipeline, and so now you've got something that is that can move much more quickly, and you can say, okay, it doesn't look real, but it's gorgeous, and it will run on everything. It will run on everything, and that that was the great uh, that was that leveled everything, so that was, even was people a... with crappy old equipment could still get on and play World of Warcraft and have fun. And it was a beautiful kind of combination of of technical. Uh, of, do, of basically taking advan- taking a technical weakness and turning it into an advantage and mating that with a really smart art direction. Yeah, that was that was definitely game development jujitsu right there. Yeah, and uh, so I give them huge credit. And so, uh, of course, that said, I have you know uh, different things to say about actually how how Blizzard runs things internally. That's <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, but but in terms of being a smart business as being a smart developer and in mm-hmm. terms of being smart business wise and using their tech wise, they don't really get much smarter than Blizzard. Not too much. 
So what are you, what's, uh, let's, you're going to be in SoonerCon in like a week. Yes. Uh, so this coming, coming weekend, I will be at SoonerCon. So that's so Oklahoma this, City. So this episode will actually air while you were there in Oklahoma City. That is right. And so, uh, uh, it's going to be a really exciting convention. Of course, I'm, I'm natively from, uh, Oklahoma to, to mm-hmm. begin with. And so this is actually a convention that I helped run many years ago. So this is kind of going home. Oh, wow. And, uh, I, I wasn't a, a muckety muck. I was just one of, of various minions, but Larry and uh, some of the other people that were in Star OKC, which is our, our science fiction club whenever I was in college there, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, it's it's nice going back and seeing some of the folks that are still there. And, so, you, so you and Larry Nimichek go way back. We yeah, Larry and I go way way back. We go back to whenever I was in college, and so uh, I I met Larry whenever he was still whenever the Star Trek uh, the Next Generation companion was still a fanzine. Wow. Um, uh, so wow, I still wow, have wow. I still have the yellow, blue, and red uh, uh, volumes that he he created. Th- that's uh, that's amazing. I did not. I had no idea you went that far back. Yeah, so so we've we've known each other uh, for Coon's age, as the, as the old <laughs> expression goes, and so we've been friends for a great uh, a long time. And so whenever uh, Larry kind of approached me and talked to me about, hey, I'm shooting this documentary for the Con of Wrath, I'd love for you to be involved. Uh, I was just more than happy to do it because it's like uh, Larry and I have had you know uh, both creative guys, but we haven't necessarily had had things that overlapped, and this was an opportunity when I started getting into indie film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was an opportunity for us to do something together. So you, um, with respect to indie film, you have uh, a short film called The Case of Evil. The Case of Evil. And I uh, uh, was very uh, happy uh, that uh, last year uh, we took it out on tour. Uh, it toured the United States, Canada, and the UK. Uh, we had 39 film festivals select us to view. And uh, we picked up six awards. And uh, uh, just a few about about a month ago, uh, we went on to Amazon Prime. So you can watch it on uh, on Amazon. If, so if you just look up the case of evil on uh, Amazon, uh, you can find us there. If you are an Amazon Prime member, you can watch it for free. Uh, and if you're not, then you uh, it's available for rent or for purchase. And so uh, so far, we've been very, very pleased and gratified that we've had a lot of very nice reviews on mm-hmm. on it. Um, uh, my, I think my favorite view uh, has to be is um, uh, another uh, person that's been a guest on your show, Jeffrey Thorne, who yes, is uh-huh. one of the producers for The Librarians, uh, uh-huh. gave very high praise. And so uh, uh, we, we, we broadcast that as much as possible. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, awesome. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the news item today, but Jeff actually just picked up a comic line. Uh, he's, he's, really? doing, he's doing a series of comics with Marvel. Wow. And so he's a busy guy. He is a busy guy, but he is also one of the coolest, most laid back guys you'll ever meet. And I've always been really gratified that as, you know, with all the stuff that he's done, he's just comic books and Star Trek and all this other stuff that, that, that Jeff has done. He is one of the most down to earth guys you will ever meet. Um, well, Neil, I, I we're, a, we're, a, we're over our hour today. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay, man. It's always fascinating talking to you. I mean, we sort of. Uh, I tried to uh, lead us through this conversation, but there were so many interesting uh, sites to see along the way <laughs> that we just got so busy. Uh, it's We have been talking to Neil Halford, game designer, author, and filmmaker, uh, and uh, convention runner from way back, and, and uh, uh, just 
an amazing guy. Oh, and, and if I could plug something very quickly. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and so uh, in addition to going out and, f- and finding the case available on Amazon, uh, the other thing uh, I'd ask is that uh, I am an independent filmmaker, independent game designer, uh, and so I have no masters at the moment, which means, uh, means that uh, uh, every dime that I make, I have to do it by force. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I have a Patreon. The Patreon uh, as, campaign. As uh, Krypton. Uh-huh. And so if you would go hit uh, my Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash Nelius, N-E-A-L-I-I-O-S. Uh, and if you subscribe, we have exclusive stuff there that you can only see if you are a subscriber. We also have uh, other stuff we post uh, uh, occasionally that's that's free stuff that everybody can see. But I have something just today that we, we just posted, which is uh, uh, something that I shot with Larry. So anyway, um, that's just sort of a quick plug for my, my Patreon. And you can uh, um, I've looked at your Patreon. And if you're a game designer or game developer or writer, there's something for you there. Pretty much any of those things. Yes. <laughs> thank you yes. so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Event Horizon, Neil. And we look forward to having you back. And thank you, Jane. You have been listening to episode 140 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for June 25th, 2016. Our guest this evening has been game designer, author, and filmmaker Neil Halford, with your host, Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again on Sunday, June 26th, 2016, at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on Sunday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator, and you would like to appear as a guest on the Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. Krypton Radio is largely listener-supported, and if you enjoy hearing the Event Horizon each week, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash kryptonradio. Just five green pieces of paper a month. That's all we ask. This program is copyright 2016 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>